0: It's the weekend edition of FAQ NYC, the New Yorkist podcast in the newsroom by and for New Yorkers, the city. This is where we step back from the rush of the news cycle to take deeper dives and different looks into some of the things that are always happening in the only place in the world. I'm Harry Siegel, editor at The City and columnist for The Daily News, here with Andrew Kurtzman, the author of the new biography, Giuliani. The Rise and Tragic Fall of America's Mayor. It's Andrew's second biography of him, after 2000's Rudy Giuliani, Emperor of the City, which was updated just after 9-11, as Andrew ended up spending much of that day with the mayor. You'll hear more about that in the course of our conversation. Let's jump right in. It's FAQ NYC. I'm Harry Siegel here with Andrew Kurtzman. Uh, Andrew, welcome. Thank you. Nice to be here, Harry. Uh, Great to have you. Um, This comes up again and again. And the question is always, what happened to Rudy Giuliani? And reading reading your, your new account, which is very interesting, really rich, and uh, well-reported and balanced. Uh, you know, I'm torn between, you can see the parts of him that have always been this way and the ways in which he, he changed over time. So so to start, I'm hoping you can just uh, fill listeners in on how you've ended up writing two different biographies of, of, of this figure and what's changed in your uh, decades- of observing him sure
1: well the first book was an account of his rise i was um the giuliani reporter for new york one news um, from the 1993 campaign until after 9 11 and you know i watched uh this extraordinary career and watched man, one man kind of turn around his city despite enormous odds and enormous opposition Um, It it was incredible theater, it was incredible um, uh, politics, and he was this kind of over-the-top, you know, very entertaining, um, authoritarian, um, effective, sadistic, arguably racist, um, competent mayor, someone who, who just had so many sides to him, and it was so effective that I, I had to, a lot to say about it. So that was, that was the first puck. <laughs> then, you know, fast forward 20 years, um, when he comes back into uh, the spotlight under Trump, he's a different man, right? And the question is, what happened? As, as you said, and so the second book is not the rise of Giuliani; it's the rise and fall of Giuliani, and it's it's the entire narrative arc, you know, starting with childhood, which was, you know, incredibly dysfunctional, um, all you know through the prosecutor and Mayo years, and finally through the Trump years. Um, you know, short answer <laughs> to what happened to him: if I had to f- use one word, I would use desperation, and this is a person. Who was just the king of the world through the 2008 campaign for president, flamed out spectacularly in that race. Was the front runner for a year, and then when the primaries began 2008, he lasted just four weeks, walked out with just one delegate in total humiliation. You know, after that, it's it just becomes a story of desperation to regain the glory, the power, and the money. That he had accumulated after 9
0: 11 and I think it saw its
1: nadir under Trump.
0: So the book gets into this, but after nine eleven, Giuliani, who'd been a power-oriented person, uh, suddenly discovers, uh, along with his uh, beau at the time, Judith, that, that, that he uh, he really likes money, and 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 he's got this this fascinating firm, whatever it is. That uh, is more or less an almost Trumpy way, just there to exchange his name for money. That's right. That's right.
1: Almost, almost like a glorified branding firm.
0: So one thing that that jumped out at me, I knew, but just seeing it in print this way, when you said arguably racist, is in in Giuliani's second term. There's a whole series of uh, terrible policing incidents and uh one of these right after i believe the diallo cops had uh just you know been let off in the criminal justice system is uh this actual choir boy patrick dorisman right. and in the protests after uh he's shot after um, the diallo thing involved the massive expansion of the anti-gun unit as it got larger and sloppier the Dorisman was under uh, the same commissioner, uh, Square Jawed Howard Safer, right. uh, the Art Howell of police commissioners, in my view, um, uh, this massive expansion of the drug unit. And in the course of this, this, this guy, Doris Mond, is out, it's a Haitian guy, his family uh, is, is uh, famous musicians there, which I had not realized his father and one of his brothers until reading the book. Doing his own thing. And this guy comes up to him, undercover cop, and says, do you want to buy crack? And he says something to the effect of, you know, fuck you. Uh, Scuffle ensues. His friend screams. He's got a gun. But this other guy, he doesn't know, is an undercover cop. He ends up shot. Giuliani trashes him. Says he was no choir boy. Releases his juvenile record. Trashes his girlfriend eventually. Right. Um, All this stuff. And then in the protests after this, Al Sharpton reemerges, who Giuliani had frozen out. Um, and only after that does Giuliani meet with, like, New York's Black leadership. So he meets with uh, Carl uh, McCall, the state controller, C. Virginia Fields, the Manhattan Borough president. And as you note, know, this is treated like like a historic summit because it's not just Sharpton, which maybe was uh, part of his being as effective as he was on the policing front. He, he basically just not spoken to the city's Black political leadership for years as mayor. Right. Is that racist, and and does that say something about who he was and where things went?
1: Was it racist? Was it racially insensitive? Was it um, you know terrible politics? Uh, you know, I, in, in terms of the the meetings with the um, the black officials. Let me just here. Let me just go back just just a little. If I could just take a step back,
0: please. Um, You did a very good job kind of summarizing the issue. What made me ask was that Fields, who's a mild-mannered, conciliatory political figure, says, and you quote her, I've never seen this, I don't like to define people this way typically, but he was just an absolute out-of-control racist. And this is not a bomb thrower by any stretch. Not at all. And
1: she didn't say it at the time. She was very, you know, diplomatic at the time. It was years later that she kind of spoke her mind, right? So the, the, this all began with the Diallo um, episode. It was really the Diallo episode that triggered the explosion, right? So Diallo is, is shot and killed um, by this um, uh, anti-crime force and Sharpton, who had been iced out of City Hall from almost day one by Giuliani and very effectively iced out by Giuliani, saw this as his moment of return. And just created what I called in the book a masterpiece of political theater. And he organized these sit-ins outside of one police plaza that were just extraordinary. They were nonviolent, right? And they were well orchestrated. And with each given day, the sit-ins grew. And you know, the police were, you know, summarily hauling them away in what used to be called paddy wagons. And uh the stature of the crowd uh Grew as well. And the kind of um the high point for Sharpton was the day that Mayor Dinkins, a former mayor Dinkins, decided to sit in and was carried away by police. And sure enough, that photograph ended up on the front page of the New York Times. It was just, and Giuliani's popularity plunged, I mean, it doubled. I I forgot, but something like 30 points. Um, it was just, it was just a, such a low point in the Giuliani mayoralty. But it was also a telling moment in Giuliani's mayoralty because there, there's a passage in the book about how Frank Luntz, his pollster, put together a focus group and you know, convinced Giuliani to go to this focus group studio with his aides and watch as average citizens kind of complimented Giuliani's um, um, accomplishments as mayor but felt very strongly that Giuliani needed to show more compassion to the Black community, needed to um, meet with Black uh, officials, needed to use more um, um, compromising language. And Giuliani, watching this through a one-way mirror, just explodes at his aides. He's like, I am not going to compromise my principles. I am not going to kowtow to the crowds. I am not going to throw the police under the bus. He said, I would rather not be mayor. And I mean, that was a very telling moment. You could look at it positively or negatively. I mean, at, at, in general, that obstinacy and that um, moral certitude in his own beliefs is what I think helped turn around New York. At that moment, it was absolutely catastrophically uh, wrongheaded. Um, he had to be you know, drag kicking and screaming to meet with Carl McCall and Virginia Fields. And it was just such a bizarre, deplorable <laughs> revelation to the public that the man had iced out black officials his entire
0: uh, term. Something you note in the book, I went back and looked after reading this. I think the conventional wisdom has become that Giuliani was done old news. He was Winston Churchill. Thanks for winning the war. Now get out right. by 2001. But in fact, polling earlier that year showed that, that, that he continued to be a fairly popular figure as he was coming to an end uh, right. and prior, prior to 9-11. Right.
1: That, I mean, that bothers me that it's it's become conventional wisdom that Giuliani was finished politically at the end of his term. He wasn't, and it's just kind of taken for granted, and it's been repeated in every news story, you know, probably thousands of news stories by, by then. Uh, in truth, his popularity plummeted after Dorisman, which um, I believe was over the summer of his last year. But, you know, as with many of his um, controversies, it um, bounced back because New Yorkers cared more about whether or not their streets were safe than about any given controversy. And by the time that he left office, before 9-11, his popularity was at 56%, which, as you know, for, a, for any politician, is a great number. So, you know, let's set the, the record straight.
0: So, so, to me, reading this book, going back over your earlier book, what really stands out, considering the 20-plus years since, um, and then, you know, of course, Biden's famous line, and noun of verb in 9-11, his collapse in 2008, his resurrection as a Trumpy guy, even as Trump takes parts of his operatic, you know, page divorce shtick, is that Giuliani has been Erased from many, not just progressives, but conventional Democrats' narrative, the, the, the this was uh, abortion rates or lead paint or uh, the crime drop nationally, the 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 idea that there was something successful and transformative in his uh, time as mayor has been has been largely lost. And then reading the book, there were a number of passages where I thought of Eric Adams as you were going over Giuliani going to cigar bars, like these private clubs, to have private meetings and and rendezvous as well. Uh Uh, Not saying Adams is having rendezvous. Um, And having this very tight-knit circle of people around him who are sometimes decent people and sometimes just his crooks. Um, Adams, of course, has nothing nice to say about Giuliani and vice versa. Um, But there there does seem to be some some common DNA there. And I'm just curious your your thoughts as somebody who's followed this man for a very long time, how it is that that maybe this has something to do, by the way, with Bill Braddon coming back with with Bill de Blasio to, uh, (laughs) you know, update and rewrite his story. um, How the successes of the Giuliani years in terms of uh, of of crime, in terms of the city's population, uh, you know. Uh, the economy, all those things, have maybe been lost, and and why that happened, and how, and why how maybe Giuliani helped make that happen uh, with uh, who he's become on the public stage since leaving office. Right, right, right. Well, let's talk about Eric Adams first. I,
1: you know, the parallels are obvious, right? The uh, crime got worse um, under De Blasio. Eric Adams campaigns on Law and Order, and of course. Um, you know wins wins office based uh, upon just one issue you know proportionately the the city was in far worse shape under giuliani or under dinkins when giuliani won than um it was under de blasio when adams won um you know the parallels aren't um perfect you know giuliani had spent um a decade as a prosecutor. Um, you know, before that, he had worked at the Justice Department. He was, he'd st- he was steeped in criminal justice, you know, on a very, very deep level and um, appointed Bill Bratton, who was a um, criminal justice um, visionary. And he himself um, appointed people like Jack Maple, another visionary. Eric Adams' claim to fame is that he was a cop. And not every cop knows how to solve the crime problem in the city. <laughs> Um, so I, there there are stark differences, I think, um, between the Giuliani, you know, approach and his qualifications and Eric Adams. their um their politics were very, very similar. Now, you know, whether or not how much credit Giuliani deserved for the crime drop is something that you know, people are going to argue about until you know, everyone drops. um you know, what I, what I can say and what I discussed in the book is that New York's um, crime drops, were just far more dramatic than those of, of other cities. And Harry, your, your, your great father, Fred Siegel, wrote you know, extensively about this in his book, just dissecting the difference between the crime drops in, in other cities and in New York. So, and also, it was just kind of like for anyone who was there, you just watched it, right? You just saw when they changed policing tactics, when they created CompStat, when they, you know, when Bratton made huge personnel changes at one police plaza, how how so much changed so quickly in New York? It just defies logic and common sense that it was all out of Giuliani's hands. I don't believe it.
0: I want to go backward in time a little bit uh, to Giuliani on the rise in the federal justice system. And your, your book has a capsule history of what's happening in 1981, when you have two different groups of refugees coming over, uh, first Cubans who are being more or less welcomed uh, by the uh, by the Reagan administration. Right. And then Haitians fleeing from uh, Baby Doc Duvalier and Giuliani taking the lead and dealing with this in pretty incredible terms. Um, but this is not a problem, a major problem, a systematic problem of political repression. in Haiti testifies uh, to say that people have no reason to flee. He mocks those pathetic people sort of holding hands and kissing each other and saying this man and wife were separated by this cruel, vicious government. Right. These people don't come over with marriage certificates. They keep claiming that different people are their wives. And then saying if you let the, man, the men into the women's camp, they go around raping them, which I don't think there was any news stories or backings no. for. No. And it all just seems so incredibly Trumpy to put a modern frame on it and right. distressing. And this was part of uh, Giuliani ingratiating himself to the Reagan administration uh, at, at the time. And to go back to the what happened to Rudy Giuliani question, it suggests to me at least that, that, that some of that crassness some of that, arguably, racism, and some of that opportunism, was there from very early on. Right. Well,
1: you know, the whole theme of my book is about moral compromising, and the you can almost kind of chart it on a graph. Right. The, the moral compromises that Giuliani, Giuliani made from the beginning in order to succeed, and there, you know, there was kind of one here and one there, and another there, you know, through nine eleven, and. You know, as, um, you know, as the temptations of money and power presented themselves after 9 11, the more he kind of sold out. And then after he crashed and burned after 2008, he was just for sale, right? And the ultimate example was his endorsement of Trump, who he considered a carnival barker, in the words of uh, one of his political aides. Back to the, um, the Haitian issue. I mean, that was a perfect example of a moral compromise. I mean, Giuliani behaved her- horrifically. I mean, he sent people back to this murderous regime and used these incredibly racist terms, as you just, you just said. He did it for his own political benefit. It was reprehensible. I mean, he, was, you know, he backed up President Reagan's politics at the expense of human lives. It was terrible.
0: The book, of course, goes into this in more detail. Uh, but between '89, when Giuliani—excuse me—when Giuliani loses, and '93, when he wins, he has a first period of going off. And he's got his mind on running again and self-enriching. He eventually puts together a self-opposition file that's, that's very well done. That, among other things, gets into the ways in which. Uh, he Who's helping people evade taxes, working with appalling foreign governments, um, including the Haitians, of course, the uh, 1992 police riot and on and on. So as you're assembling all this, compiling the book, thinking through what's worth putting into a second Giuliani biography, having already written one of his mayoral years and then updating it after 9-11 when you were with the mayor, I, I wonder if you could say maybe in sequence, what you see as the most significant moments of moral compromise or slippage as this becomes a story of his fall.
1: Right. Well, it's a, it's a great question, and I spend a huge amount of time on that in, in my book. I, I mean, the moral compromises began in an early stage, and um, some of them were private and some of them were public. You know, privately, he was cheating on his wives from... Not just the most famous example where, you know, he was cheating on Donahann over the first lady, but it goes back further. His first wife, Regina Perugia, was, you know, continually humiliated by Giuliani's affairs when he was a prosecutor. And, you know, his affairs just continued for, for years and years. So, you know, the moral compromises, you know, began in his private life you know, the Haitian refugees was a, was a moral compromise. Um, you know, his, a lot of his prosecutions were, were just absolutely off. The Bess Meyerson case was, you know, we had a, a, the daughter of a judge, um, testify against her mother, Judge Hortense Gable. It was insane. And of course, you know, Bess Meyerson was found not guilty there. Um, as, as mayor, right, we've talked about the, um, Diallo uh, event, people, at times when it was just he was convinced by Christine Latigano, his uh, press secretary and communications director, not to meet with any of these black officials because he felt that they were Dinkins people. Um, but the, you know the bigger moral compromises happened as in his post mayoralty. And um, one of the most significant ones was after right after 9-11, he is now you know, more popular than the Pope, according to polls at the time. And instead of kind of preserving his statesman's role, he decides to cash in, right? He could have done anything. He was, every every conceivable door was open to him at that moment. He was America's mayor, one of the most beloved men on the planet. Instead, he opens Giuliani Partners, makes $100 million in uh, revenue over five years, um, representing some really sketchy clients, and putting, as you said, his imprimatur um, on a lot of clients who were in big trouble, that was a moral compromise. Um, the The, the you know the client list was just uh, was just terrible. Um, the moral compromises accelerated after the two thousand eight race, and I could go into that if you'd like.
0: Jumping ahead to the present. Uh, Giuliani is embroiled in a uh, alimony fight with Judy Nathan now. Uh, Both of them have listed uh, their living expenses, which are fairly insane. You know, Judy with like $5,000 a month, I believe, for housekeeping on top of many other tens of thousands. Giuliani spends more in a year on like pens and cigars than uh, the average New York family household income uh, by multiple right right Does this in your view looking at him representing Trump, re as a national figure doing a podcast selling uh cigars and gold bars and whatever else uh you know are, are these compromises accelerated as he gets a uh, a taste and maybe a need for a uh, significant sums of money to finance his lifestyle They're critical to the story. They're critical
1: to the story. I mean, he he, Judith Nathan, his ex-wife, Judith Nathan Giuliani, um, sat down with me for you know probably sixteen hours of interviews. The the first extensive interview she's ever given, and one of her great quotes in my book is that they were spending two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a month on sheer fun. They had he had six houses. Eleven country club memberships. You know, this is a man who used to buy his suits off the rack at at um, Rothmans for two hundred ninety nine dollars, and this is throughout his mayoralty. And suddenly, he's awash with cash, unimaginable amounts of money. After two thousand eight, his crash and burn in the presidential race. It it's all suddenly teetering. It's all on the brink, right? His. 9/11 halo was tarnished. His political power is, is diminished. He's uh, he's left the race in humiliation. It was it probably dawned upon him at that moment that he would never ever run again for anything, and that mayor would be the highest title he'd ever achieve. And he, according to Judith, he went into a deep depression. And there's a whole segment in my book about uh, Donald Trump giving them um, kind of a hideaway at Mar a Lago after uh after the 2008 race where according to her you know as a former nurse she felt that he was in a clinical depression he started drinking and the the rest of the Giuliani story is is a story of someone trying to recapture what he had after 9 11. the money the glory the fame the adoration and is the only way back to relevance was through Donald Trump, and so you know one probably the biggest moral compromise he made in his entire career was to endorse Trump. And Trump, he you know he had very low, he had a very low uh, opinion of Trump. But Trump was the only person knocking at his door, and it turned out the only person knocking at his door was also the runaway front runner for the Republican nomination. And uh, you know other candidates didn't need Giuliani. Trump needed Giuliani. He didn't have political support he didn't have um a, a network and he certainly didn't have any policy expertise and giuliani was all of that in one package and you know fast forward you know to 2020 you know by then giuliani is a laughing stock right the borat film uh the dripping hair dye you know his like crazy appearances on network television, where he loses his temper with Chris Cuomo. And uh, I mean, he was a laughingstock by the time of the 2020 race. He became kind of the last true believer, the last kind of dead ender with Trump after Biden won. He was the only attorney telling Trump that Trump had won. (laughs) Every every other mainstream campaign um, attorney, election lawyer under Trump, was telling him to give it up except Giuliani. And it wasn't because of, I don't know, it it wasn't um, cynical. It was more because he needed Trump to win. He needed to reverse the results of the 2020 race because without Trump, he was finished. His ability to earn money with clients was, you know, would be finished. His escape from potential prosecution would, you know, would go away. His, his fame, his political power, it all rested on turning around the results of the 2020 race. And that's kind of the rest of his history.
0: Back to that history, and this will be the uh, penultimate question here. So reading the book, you get a very clear sense of how much Giuliani likes being in a tight corner, having a fight defying odds and conventional wisdom and despite his low opinion at many points uh dealing with trump or partnering with him uh, when he was mayor for uh for political benefit uh i'm hoping you can talk just for a minute about the relationship the two of them had uh when when, when it was you know donald trump uh developer right he's still in that right. business and uh, mayor giuliani Right. Well, there was this great
1: story we learned about going through the mayoral archives of the Giuliani administration. We found all these terrific letters to Giuliani and his deputy mayor, Randy Levine, over the U.N. tower or the tower near the U.N. Trump wanted to build the world's largest residential tower, despite a longstanding agreement with the United Nations, never to build anything I believe, higher than the General Assembly building. Well, this thing was like triple the height. It was quote
0: unquote 90 stories.
1: Right, right. And the typical Trump um, style, he actually lied. It was actually, I think, closer to 70. Um, But so Trump is lobbying the administration for uh, not to oppose this project. And um, bombarding Giuliani with all this praise and all of this kind of intelligence about what other rich people are supporting Hillary Clinton for Senate, because it was in the middle of a Senate race at that time. And meanwhile, sending, you know, imploring uh, Randy Levine to kind of let his thing go through. The people opposing this project were Walter Cronkite and other, Walt, you know, Walter Wriston as well, this legendary, uh, I believe, city court uh, chairman. and. Um, they were finding it completely frustrating that Giuliani not only was not siding with them, he wasn't even returning their letters. And you know, it was amusing to see Walter Cronkite's letters get increasingly angry that Giuliani was dissing him. And meanwhile, Giuliani was speaking at Trump's mother's funeral, at his father's funeral, appearing in that famous video with Giuliani in drag, where. Uh, Trump nuzzles his nose in between Giuliani's fake breaths. I mean, the two of them were simpatico. And, you know, it was it, it, they had they had a connection going back a long way.
0: Andrew, last question here. I'm hoping you can step back a bit and talk about. Uh, trying to talk to Rudy, trying to talk to the people around Rudy. For the previous book and, and and for this one and sort of the uh, the closed guarded circle he has and also if you can uh, how it was that you earned uh, uh, Judy Nathan's trust as somebody who has not been speaking to the the press and really opens up and, and delivers some really interesting information throughout the course of your book and the book again is Giuliani the rise and tragic fall of America's mayor and. Uh, Andrew Kurtzman, who will always be a daily news reporter in my head. And then of course on, on, on New York One, and now a consultant and a writer of books. Uh, thank you again for 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 joining us and taking a bit of time to go through this. The book is really quite a terrific read, very interesting. I learned a lot.
1: Uh th- thank you. Well, Giuliani was um uh very reluctant to say the least to cooperate at first. And you know, we, we exchanged a lot of text messages where he was afraid that. You know, the liberal press would you know not give him a fair shake and went back and forth until that kind of hit a dead end it was interesting in um, researching the book it took me three years to research and write this book the first year what it was it was impossible to crack the nut he had so many um, former aides and friends who were still loyal to him they were totally ashamed at what he's become but he had been such a good boss and had given them the best years of their life. They didn't wanna talk at all. It took me a year to earn the trust of his circle. And then everyone eventually talked. And Judith Nathan was her own story. I mean, I think she was fed up with being trashed by uh, all his advisors who just absolutely loathed her. And so that took about three months of letter writing on my behalf to all of our various properties till I got a phone call from her. uh, you know the, the the process of reporting this book was absolutely fascinating frustrating at first and exhilarating by the end
0: and do you think that the Giuliani's increasing prominence sort of strange role in the Trump world had anything to do with with people opening up to you like like, like as you were doing your your reporting and work did, did this line up with uh you know his latest uh reemergence in some sense as one of this generation of characters along with Trump and Al Sharpton for instance uh-huh. who I don't think anyone in 1989 anticipated would be at the uh, center of things necessarily in 2020 right. or 2022 right 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 I, I mean as
1: I said they're they're disgusted with the Giuliani of today I mean to a person I I don't know I don't the, the only person sorry who has stood by him and still believes in what he did in 2020 is Bernie Carrick, right? He is, he is the ultimate Giuliani loyalist and he's still by his side. Everyone else is just absolutely appalled by the Giuliani of today and they've fallen away. And, you know, in many respects, Giuliani is all but alone. It's a very, very tragic
0: end to the Giuliani story. Andrew, thank you so much. Um, I really appreciate that. Thank you so much, Harry. So appreciate the opportunity to talk to you about this. F-A-Q.
2: Thank you for listening to FAQ NYC. We're now part of The City, a nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom dedicated to hard-hitting reporting that serves the people of New York. Our work is freely available to everyone at thecity.nyc and is supported by listeners and readers like you. Go to thecity.nyc slash donate if you'd like to pitch in. We are headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty, Policy, and Research, and are also a proud member of the Brick House Cooperative of independent journalists, critics, and artists online at thebrick.house. Our host this week was Harry Siegel, who's also our executive producer. Our audio engineer is me, Adam Kimara. A special thank you to our guest, Andrew Kurtzman, and to you for joining us and making it this far. Be kind, be cool, and we'll be back soon with more.